Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Well, welcome to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And Barry, today we're kind of making a small detour from our usual conversations with people who are independent restaurant operators. And it's because we've got an opportunity to talk about digital revolution, digital disruption. The book is Delivering the Digital Restaurant. And we have one of the authors with us, Meredith Sandlin. So Meredith, welcome to Corner Booth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. In particular, when we started the journey of writing, delivering the digital restaurant, we were motivated and thinking always of the independent restaurateur and how we talk with them and give them information about this huge change that's going on. It's off to a great start. It's a number one bestseller. Congrats. Yeah, we're just absolutely blessed by the reception we've gotten. I think when you write a book, as both you guys probably know as writers yourselves, you put something out there and it's probably a year before you get feedback. The publishing process takes a long time. And during that publishing process, you wonder, is this book still going to be relevant? Are people going to want to read it? And of course, this year has been especially crazy for the restaurant industry with the pandemic and all of the shutdowns that occurred. And in many ways, a lot of restaurants having to pivot, you know, just turn on a dime and become digital restaurants. In a lot of ways, they became ghost kitchens, maybe without ever having heard those words before. And I think now is such a great time to step back and reflect on, you know, okay, we made it through. Now, what do we want to do on purpose? I read the book cover to cover, if you can say that on Kindle. It's exceptionally well-written. There's so much to talk about. It really covers so much ground in terms of what's going on. It's like drinking out of a fire hose. But I'll start with this. Having read the entire book, I found it to be a very exciting time to be an independent operator. Am I being Pollyannish or am I seeing the barriers to entry falling down to enjoy all these technical innovations? I'm going to let you carry us through that conversation. There are definitely pluses and minuses. On the plus side, what I call the sassification of technology has really democratized access to technologies that previously only the big brands could afford. You know, the big chains would spend millions of dollars building things in-house And that just doesn't make sense for a single restaurant or even a small chain to do. And now that software as a service has made many of these tools available to everyone for a small monthly fee, the great news is anyone can digitize their business pretty easily. That's the good news. The bad news is there are so many tools out there that I think it's quite hard to know where to begin. And for those of us who got into the industry because we love food or we love hospitality, We didn't necessarily get into it because we love technology and trying to figure out of all the different possible approaches that are out there, which one is right for your restaurant is a pretty challenging thing to do. I bet maybe for the independent operators too, that are sometimes still stumbling with understanding the disruption that's happened. Maybe you can give them a little clarity and let's start with the difference between say ghost kitchen the advantages and disadvantages there, and a virtual brand, which I know some people are having some success with and maybe more independents can do. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the ghost kitchen is like the hardware. 
It is the place in which a lot of this digital stuff happens, whereas a virtual brand is more like the software. It is the brands that ride on top the infrastructure, whether it is an existing restaurant, which would be a host kitchen or a ghost kitchen. So let's start with that ghost kitchen. It is typically a kitchen that is very focused on off-premise consumption. It might have some pickup capability, but really its primary purpose is to interact with the guests digitally and then to send the product out for off-premise consumption, whether it be via pickup or delivery. Those kitchens are custom made and optimized for off-premise consumption. And by that, I mean everything from where the drivers park to how the facility is managed to the efficiency of the space and the energy use. Everything about it is made to make off-premise consumption easier and more cost-effective than it's been traditionally out of a restaurant. And then virtual brands, when you look at them, they are brands that exist only on the internet. And I compare them most to the rise of digitally native vertical brands in the CPG and apparel space. So think things like Warby Parker, Novos, The Honest Company, you know, some of the mattress firms that came out that were internet only. These are brands that have direct relationships with their consumers, that meet their consumers online, acquire that customer to convert them to trial online, and then have an ongoing digital relationship with them to encourage frequency and repeat use all digitally. So no one ever comes into the store, never sees it, um, but they learn about it online and then continue to use it. Some of those virtual brands, and we um, talk about this in the book, are offered by others, right? So someone, a company like Nextbyte um, might license them to you. Um, a company like Franklin Junction might match make you with another um, virtual brand or brand that's out there. Um, some of them, you guys, restaurants all out there making on your own and saying, what works with my menu that I have in my kitchen today? And what can I add to it and talk about differently to reach a different segment of consumers? You know, um, and I really want to talk about the branding aspect of this very much. I want to hear what you have to say. But but first, since we're on the conversation of ghost and virtual kitchens, um, I'll call it the weak link is still going to be the delivery aspect. And you cover a lot of different um, scenarios. And you also are very honest about what the problems are right now, particularly the, the cost, um, the economies of scale that the chains enjoy. Um, what is, where do you think it's going to go? I'll tell you where I, what I found most compelling in your book is the discussion of the delivery co-op to essentially unionize and democratize uh, delivery uh, for independence. But um, you've thought about this a lot. What's your forecast? Well, I love the co-op model as well. I think uh, the experiment that started in Iowa City um, with Loco has really um, expanded and a lot of restaurants can make use of that. I think it's a great model. Um, most restaurants are too subscale to have a delivery fleet of their own. It's just never gonna make sense. And so whether you're leveraging someone big like Uber Eats or DoorDash or creating your own small co-op, um, banding together is really the most efficient way to, to get delivery. Um, do I think it'll become a widespread model? Uh, I don't. And it's because of the consumer. Consumers have adopted Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, and they've adopted them in mass because, frankly, those companies are spending a lot of money to convert consumers over to those platforms. Once they're on them, 
I think it's pretty difficult to say, oh, it's just going to go away. They're all going to convert to first party or they're all going to convert to a co-op model. Um, I think those will always continue to be there. Now, will there be as many of them? Probably not. We've already seen some consolidation. I think we'll likely see some more. Uh, when you look in foreign countries um, all around the world, when you look in other verticals here in the US, typically what you see is two, maybe three uh, big platforms at the most in any vertical. Um, so, you know, think about travel. Um, there's not a whole bunch of different places out there um, where you go to get your plane ticket. There's probably two or three that you use um, and one that you're really, really loyal to. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the economies of scale, and I, I know in certain um, cities, they've even tried to um, introduce um, ordinance and legislation to cap uh, delivery fees. Um, if this style of, of restaurant business continues to grow, um, delivery is almost like a utility. Um, what do you think in terms of the advantages, for example, Wingstop might have and be able to negotiate special pricing with Uber Eats or DoorDash versus the guy down the street who has one or two units. And, and frankly, he's got to depend on these same um, uh, businesses. Yeah, well, I guess the first thing I would say is it's important to compare the cost of delivery to the cost of doing it yourself. And I think if any restaurant does that, they will very quickly find that there is probably no economic case unless they're maybe a pizza or Chinese a restaurant in a very, very dense urban environment uh, to have a delivery fleet of their own. So when it looked at in that light, all of a sudden that fee starts to look a little bit more reasonable. But then you're raising a very important point about the difference in ability to negotiate if you're an independent restaurant versus if you have thousands of locations across the country. And I think for um, the independent restaurants, you've seen uh, companies like DoorDash come out with new tiered pricing models where they try to differentiate uh, the different types of services that they're offering. And you know, in the book, we talk about it as three things that they're really offering. One is that tech or ordering interface, which most restaurants are not gonna build on their own. Uh, the next is a logistics service uh, to actually fulfill and deliver those orders. And then finally, um, marketing and uh, being able to acquire customers over to that way of being. And if you take all three of those together, that's pretty valuable. And so DoorDash has started to say, okay, really that 30% charge that restaurants all complain about, that's for all three of those things. And then they've introduced tiers down below to say, you know what, if you're just using us basically as a, as a logistics delivery fleet and someone is looking specifically for your restaurant and we're not delivering incremental orders to you and therefore um, we're not delivering marketing, uh, then probably we should charge you less. Uh, and I think that is very responsible of those third-party companies to think through how can they best partner with restaurants? Because honestly, this doesn't work without all parties, right? If the drivers don't show up, if the restaurants don't show up, if the delivery companies don't show up, the consumers don't show up, this doesn't work. That marketplace needs everyone to participate in order for it to be good. And if they, you know, um, the third-party delivery companies kill the goose and laid the golden egg, so to speak, um, then they're not going to have anything to deliver. And I think they know that. You know, in an earlier uh, episode, we had as our guest, uh, Doug Brooks, the former uh, CEO of Brinker International. And uh, I would like to get, you know, your input on the comment he made, because 
uh, he was explaining, you know, the tremendous success that Chili's had with a virtual brand when they rolled out their wing concept. I think they tested it in like a hundred units. It was phenomenal. I don't know how many units now operate with it. Uh, but of course he was commenting on the fact that the larger brands that utilize all three tiers that you mentioned do seem to be able to, um, monopolize, uh, the delivery, um, uh, segment, they're able to negotiate the better fees. Uh, but what he mentioned was the one advantage that the independents can have um, is that they can promote to their customer base. And a lot of them, I guess, are through that third-party delivery with some type of an insert or brochure to promote them to encourage a direct uh, curbside pickup with specials and the kinds of things that he said, you know, chains don't necessarily uh, market or have that quick ability to do, but he knew that they could erode that opportunity by taking some of the third party delivery and by doing, you know, special weekly things or free dessert if they order on the website and do curbside pickup. Um, did you notice any of that in your research or is that an advantage as you see it? You know, I, I think it's absolutely important. We call it third party to first party conversion. Uh, we think that all restaurants should be focused on making this happen. Uh, there will always be a role for the third parties. There's going to be consumers who they're a DoorDash person, they're an Uber Eats person. Yeah. That's, where, that's where they live. And if you want to yeah. serve them, you got to be on them. So um, it's not to say, oh, don't work with them and only do first party. It's to say for those consumers that really value your food and come to you really often, why the heck are they going through a third party? They should be coming through you. And I think about this again in reference to the online travel agencies or OTAs and, and what happened as they went into their industry. And, um, you know, one of the things that happens with third party platforms is that price comparisons become much, much easier for the consumer. And as that occurs, prices generally get driven down. Um, and that certainly happened with hotels and with airlines. And the hotels and airlines, what did they do? How did they react? They started having a whole bunch of fees baggage fees, right. heat selection fees, flight change fees, resort fees, Wi-Fi fees, like just tons and tons of different fees, right? And what that enabled them to do wasn't so much to recoup that profit of the decreased price. What that enabled them to do was then waive those fees for consumers who came to their first party ordering platforms, right? So when you go on to AmericanAirlines.com to get your plane ticket and you're in their loyalty program, a whole bunch of those fees don't apply to you. And restaurants can really use that exact same playbook to say, you like to use DoorDash, you like to use lots of different restaurants, great, use lots of different restaurants, fantastic. But if you love my brand and you use it all the time and you wanna engage with me and support me, then come over to my first party channel, do the pickup yourself, and you're gonna get a better price because we're not having to pay someone to drive to you, you're coming to get the food. You might get a whole bunch of benefits. Uh, you might get things like free food. Whatever it might be that um, really encourages the consumer to want to be on your first party, it's it's the exact same playbook as what the the travel industry did. In terms of branding, uh, Meredith, um, there seems to be some ability to democratize marketing. I mean, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if you had the budget to have a lot of TV exposure it was almost impossible to compete with that. Everybody knew who Taco Bell and Burger King is. Now you see a kid out of Eastern North Carolina, Jimmy Donaldson. My son knows everything about Mr. Beast 
burgers. He never ate one, but he knows everything about them. Um, do you see the large chains still being able to dominate because of their resources, or do you see other Jimmy Donaldsons just popping up out of nowhere, and then next year, um, every 21-year-old knows everything about them? Yeah, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's certainly true that with something like TV, it is such an inefficient mode of marketing, and it's so expensive. You have to talk to everybody. It's broadcast, right? Um, and therefore, only the largest brands can afford to use it. In digital, you can be so much more targeted that even if it's expensive, you're doing a lot less of it and you're doing it only to people who matter and therefore it has a higher ROI. What that means is that small brands, as you say, can afford to um, use that channel to reach the right consumer at the right time with the right message. Now, the brands still have an advantage in that there's a science to that. Um, and most people don't necessarily know how to um, digitally market effectively. And the really big brands have spent a lot of time and effort figuring out how to do that. Some people do know how to do it. And I think what you will see is um, a bunch of really bright kids, the restaurateurs of the future, who come up with amazing ideas and are able to digitally market them effectively. And who honestly now have this incredible capital light way of rolling out that they will be able to get to their consumer much more quickly, both in terms of their advertising and branding message, but also in terms of that backend fulfillment and having the network of locations putting that food out. You know, in the old days, um, my background of course is building Taco Bells. You would need millions, maybe even billions of dollars to replicate the restaurant fleet of one of the large chains. Um, in many ways that real estate was their moat because they had it. How, even if you have the best idea and the best food, how do you compete with that? You just need so much money and so much time to physically build all those locations. But now you have an amazing idea. If you have an amazing concept, amazing food, amazing brand, you could potentially roll those out overnight, much like Brinker did with It's Just Wings mm -hmm. and talk to your consumer about it digitally, much like Mr. Beast Burger does. And all of a sudden um, you've created a brand without those billions of dollars. You know, it's good that you mentioned that. And, and, and Barry, I don't know if I pointed this out to you, but I know you remember uh, Levi Good uh, from an earlier episode, uh, Good Company. He, uh, this is an independent Meredith with, um, um, I think, four different concepts, seafood, taqueria, barbecue. Um, and you just made me think of how you could have that type of success, even as an independent, because here we were at the beginning of COVID and remember fast food was just jumping up and down with increase in revenue, people thinking convenience and safety. Popeye's reinvents the chicken sandwich has had such tremendous success. Everybody feels like they need to you know, reinvent uh, one of their more basic items. That's a good thing. So this small independent came up with a virtual concept about chicken. And it was just called Good Chicken. That's his last name. Uh, and it came out of the back of one of his restaurants. It was only virtual. You ordered online. You did pick up. You had third-party delivery. Um, it worked so well that he went on the other side of town where he had another restaurant to do a second you know, uh, location that now online ordering could get more delivery. And he was mentioning that he's having interest from investors to make it a bigger deal now. Uh, and he's reluctant to make it a brook and mortar chicken concept, which I was endorsing him to stay away from. I thought part of the beauty was this 
gorgeous, you know, chicken dinner with different sides that doesn't really exist except for on the website. I don't know. And maybe we'll see more of that. I think we absolutely will see more of that. I think, um, what do virtual brands do? Um, they do a couple of things for restaurants. Number one is they enable you to go after a market that maybe doesn't work well with your existing brand. So in the case of Chili's and it's just wings, we'll talk about that one since everyone knows it. Would you ever think to yourself, I want wings. I'm going to go to Chili's. Right. Probably not. That's not the first place that you think of to get wings. And so when they add a brand dedicated to wings, all of a sudden they increase the frequency of a Chili's consumer who goes to Chili's one night and then it's just wings another night by targeting specifically with a message around chicken wings. The, the next thing that it does is, um, and, and I think you see this in a lot of the virtual brands, it allows you to target better um, using search engine optimization on the third-party platforms. So when you say good chicken, because that word chicken is in there, someone might have never heard of you, might not be looking for you, but because they type in chicken, you come up. And you'll notice that many of the virtual brands have the name of the product in the brand. And I think that part of the reason they're successful on the third-party platforms is because they are so easy to find. And usually they're using that third-party platform as their main customer acquisition tool. So being easy to find on that platform is really, really important. The third thing that virtual brands um, enable restaurants to do is to go after what I call micro niche categories. And so as a, as a brand that has a brick and mortar uh, restaurant, you, depending on the type of restaurant you have and the type of underlying rent you're paying, you probably need somewhere between one and $4 million of annual revenue to make that place work. And if you think to yourself, man, I would love to put out a vegetarian concept because I know I can make a killer one, but you're like, Ooh, I don't know if I could sell $2 million worth of vegetarian food. Not sure I can make that happen. Virtually you could do a two or $300,000 a year concept um, target it very specifically at people who want to eat that way or want to eat that way um, maybe once a week on Meatless Monday. And it's totally going to work because it's riding on top of um, whatever other concept you have there. So this is why virtual brands offer so much to the restaurateur and why they should think about incorporating them into their business. In, in the book, you um, certainly go into some discussion on demographic shifts. Uh, you didn't ignore that at all. And going back to Doug Brooks, uh, who we had spoken to, and of course, he's, he's had a long career, he's retired, but he mentioned that um, the rise of Chili's and TGF Fridays had a lot to do with women going into workforce in the 70s, 80s, um, and saying, listen, I, I, I want a casual meal during the middle of the week. I don't want to cook. I don't want to go to McDonald's. I want to sit down. I want a glass of wine. I want to bring the kids. And now you have this whole new style of dining. Now you're looking at a whole different demographic shift. And so if I'm reading the book correctly, the technology is really important, but the demographic shift is maybe equally important. 100%. Um, we actually start the book talking about the consumers and what's happening with them. And uh, we don't get into technology until like chapter four. And the reason is because technology doesn't just appear. And I think a lot of restaurants feel like, oh, venture capitalists are investing in my industry and disrupting it, or these new technology companies are totally messing everything up. And, and that might feel a little bit true, but at root cause, there is a consumer change that's occurring 
that these technology companies and the venture capitalists are trying to take advantage of. And so if you ignore, if you just sort of say, oh, if these people would just get out of my industry, everything would be fine. You're going to miss out on the fact that the consumer themselves are changing and you need to start there, focus there, figure out how you can serve that new consumer demand in a way that works for your restaurant. Um, so the first chapter is a chapter called We Eat as a Nuclear Family No More. And, you know, there's a lot of good news in this chapter. Great news. We're living longer. Great news. We're getting married later and having fewer kids. And so we're really at replacement rate. And hopefully more of us are more mature when we have our first child and better, better position to raise them. Great news. Women are starting to catch up with men uh, in the workforce. Um, just tons and tons of good news pieces there. But what that means is that the percentage of our lives that we spend living in a traditional nuclear family has become smaller and smaller and smaller. And the percentage of our lives that we spend living with friends or as empty nesters or being a single parent is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what happens? Well, you know, you take someone like my uh, great grandparents who had 13 children and a stay-at-home mom, you know what? She basically was a home chef running a little restaurant for 15 people. And that made total sense. She was cooking at scale. That was great for her. But for me, I have one child. I'm cooking dinner pretty much for me and my husband, occasionally also for my son, if I can get him to eat what we're eating. Doesn't make as much sense for me to be cooking. A restaurant can, can have the economies of scale to produce food in a way that I as a person living in a two adult household just cannot do. Um, and so that's a really big fundamental shift. And I think that's why we see so much incrementality coming out of things like delivery because that occasion is really coming from grocery more so than restaurant. Now it was hard to tell last year with COVID because the whole industry was in such a state of flux. Um, but if you look the year prior and now as you start to see that in the recovery uh, that, that incremental occasion from delivery is really coming out of, out of uh, grocery and cooking at home. I have Gen Z, a young adult kids, and my university students are, are mostly in that demographic. And everything you said about the rise of delivery and demand for it makes perfect sense. But then I look at my students and my kids, they like their communal dining. Um, they like going out to dine as groups together. And I'm trying to figure out what that means for the restaurant business where you have people who do want to get out. If you in North Carolina, we have a million brew pubs and on any given evening, they're packed. So I'm also seeing this issue where people, particularly with so many single people now, um, don't necessarily want to be dining in front of their television every night. What where's that all going? Yeah, well, you know, we are social creatures. Um, we do love to spend time together and particularly we love to spend time together going out. And I don't think that's ever going away. Um, I think that if we paint a picture of, you know, everyone's going to be eating delivery at home by themselves, I don't think that's the future. I think there will still be tons of dining out occasions. And actually there was a um, survey just published by uh, Coca-Cola that was talking about um, how consumers expect to behave in the post-COVID era. And they actually think they're going to dine out more than they did pre-COVID. 
um, which is kind of a surprising um, fact. But the reason I think is because we have all this pent up demand from being home alone for the last year and we want to see each other. We like each other. Right. So I think that um, that dining out experience is not going away. I think that the off premise um, and the behavior we've learned in the last year is going to be um, stacked on top of that dining out behavior. And really that's great news for the restaurant industry because I think there's going to be more total restaurant dining occasions than there have been in the past. I'm happy to hear that Coca-Cola released a study on that. I did not see that, but I have heard the same things though. Um, where the uh, information data source Technomic and uh, another one that I read uh, regularly, Aaron Allen and Associates were predicting the same thing that we should be seeing a short-term uh, industry bump. We're calling it a payback, you know, for the dip. We should get a slight payback because people are going to be holding on to the convenience of the delivery that they're used to. But because of our, I guess, social nature, they want to go out and make up for lost time. We're going to go out too. So hopefully, you know, restaurants will get that little, you know, payback. Uh, when you were mentioning uh, the grocery earlier, I think that's a real interesting point. Grocery stores, I think, did start something. I'd like you to comment on it a little bit more, if you wouldn't mind, because I think that there's an opportunity there because the grocery stores have had such tremendous success in not just selling for the weekly planning of cooking at home anymore, but for the please grab me, don't I look delicious, take me home and eat me now kind yeah. of a thing. Uh, we see that the shelf space in those hot grab and goes and cold ready warm me up kind of things are growing. Um, do you see an opportunity there for some of these local restaurants to move their branded product into grocery stores. Um, I, I saw a little bit of that and I was wondering if maybe in your research you found that this could be something that we look to see more of. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think if you believe that restaurants over time are stealing share from grocery occasions, grocery companies are not just going to sit back and take it, right? They're going to look at that and say, the consumer wants more convenience. How can I offer it? And I think Trader Joe's and Whole Foods were obvious early leaders in that way of shopping. But now you see brands like Kroger and HEB coming after those as well with either fully prepared meals, semi-prepared meals, meals that just need to be reheated, or maybe ingredient kits that are assembled and put together. Um, I also think you see it in things like Kroger's deal with Kitchen United. So at first blush, you might think, wait a minute, so grocery and a ghost kitchen, how does that go together? But now imagine the efficiency of a ghost kitchen where they can put lots of brands into a very small space available in a grocery store. Grocery has great real estate. And so the um, off-premise consumption and the delivery drivers can get there really easily. The grocery also has a bunch of people walking in who need a gallon of milk, but who don't really want to cook. And they're going to come in and they're going to get their little staples that they need. And they're also going to pick up dinner for that night from one of the restaurants in one of those ghost kitchens. So I think you'll see a lot more um, melding of the grocery occasion and the restaurant occasion together. Um, I would love to have it be uh, lots of little independent restaurants who figure out how to get their food carried in um, main mainline grocery chains. I think that Ghost Kitchens and something like Kitchen United certainly create an opportunity for that. I think you'll probably also see um, the major grocery chains partnering with restaurants um, that have really good reputations to be able to um, commercialize and bring their food to scale. Um, that is really what the, the chains, whether it be a restaurant chain or a grocery chain, do so well, 
is figure out how to replicate and scale something in a way that is food safe, in a way that is consistent, and in a way that makes economic sense. Meredith, you talk a lot about customization, if I was reading your book correctly. And and I got the sense that you felt it was it was an on, it's going to be an ongoing trend in terms of what consumers want. Um, am, am I reading too much into it? And if not, how does independent operator uh, take advantage of it? And is it really critical that they do take advantage of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that you know, we will only get more of it in the future. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is um, there's been an incredible explosion in our uh, knowledge of nutritional science. Um, Two is that there has been a dramatic change in the makeup of our country. Um, We have a lot more immigrants from a lot different places and they're bringing lots of different kinds of food. Um, And when you combine those two desires um, to get, you know, a nutrition that works for me and my body or a flavor profile that I really particularly like, all of a sudden everybody wants something very, very different. The great news about digital is that it makes it extremely easy to customize those things. And so, you know, if you again, go back to what's happened in CPG and apparel over the last 10 years, as these these digital tools have been applied to those industries, you've got things like customizable perfume and customizable shampoo and customizable all kinds of things, right? You can get your tennis shoe made exactly the colors that you want it to be made because digital makes these things so much easier. So when you combine the consumer demand to have things the way they want them with these digital tools that make it easier to customize them, I think you're only going to see more and more and more of it. In terms of uh, supply chain and labor, you know, we still have to deal with that in this industry, as you well know. Um, uh, What's your forecast? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I live in Southern California and I've got a lot of ships sitting off the coast. It's going to take a while to clear that out. But um, I think on the labor side, you're going to see the industry get much more efficient with its use of labor. And you know, the cost of labor has been going up for a while now as we see the minimum wage increases. Now it's going up because of supply and demand. Right. And the longer that goes on, the more restaurants are going to realize I need to replace some of this labor with technology, whether it be a different kind of programmable oven or um, front of house staff replaced by things like kiosks and QR codes and and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think the labor that remains in the restaurant is going to be more efficient, more effective, and probably better paid than having a lot of people running around doing a lot of different things. I think that can be a win for the consumer, for the restaurant, and for the restaurant employee. Um, So I I do expect to see a lot more technology deployed in the restaurant to deal with that labor issue. On the supply chain side, I think we're just going through... Um, some hiccups and bumps as we transition back to turning our economy on. Um, and I hope that that will clear out over the course of the next year or so, but it is, it's, I think we're going to continue to see, you know, sold, sold out of this item and price increases and all those kinds of things for, for a little bit to come. And I bet you're right. I think it's going to take that long. Uh, and for the independent restaurant operators, I think they really do need to take note of what you were pointing out that, that it is time to pay attention to what the market is telling us about labor. And the more that we can um, say implement technology to help us manage smarter, that means we can get more done with fewer people, 
fewer people, better paid people is really the way I see most restaurant concepts growing. Uh, the workforce is sort of dictating that. The market is setting the wage. It's almost laughable that we're still talking about an old, old minimum wage that desperately needs to increase because the market has really set it. The, the market's taking care of it for us, I know. It's twice, it's twice yeah. the, I, I was talking to a, uh, as somebody who's planning to open their restaurant yesterday, and I was taking a look at their, you know, initial capital budget, and I was looking at these, uh, you know, starting wages, you know, and this is just a small counter service independent, a first unit. And here in Texas, it was like, okay, I've got my labor, you know, set for starting it from $14 to $20 for people who are going to do the prep and wash and cook in the kitchen. And I thought, you know, who needs to pay attention to a minimum wage? It's gone. Um, so if we could, let's let's direct your next comment maybe directly to the independents that are on that that they are facing this new normal. Digital revolution is here to stay. We know that it's impacting um, uh, the, the way they're going to, uh, say, create revenue in the future. So where should they start? What, what's the first step uh, an independent needs to pay attention to in order to make sure that... Um, that this isn't just passing them by. Yeah, you know, I think the easiest place to start is with the third-party platforms. Um, and even if you suspect that you're not getting the best deal and that they're charging way too much for what they do, they teach you so much about what's going on and how to change, and they let you access that consumer. Um, and I think most people will find, um, if they think about the profit of the incremental revenue that they're getting, that that incremental profit is valuable. Even if it's lower margin overall, it's bringing uh, new customers into the door. And if they further think about those platforms as a customer acquisition tool, it's one of the best deals in the industry. You know, going out and putting a flyer on someone's door, if you've got one in a thousand people actually seeing and responding to that flyer, those flyers are pretty expensive. But if instead you're running promotions that get you on the featured carousels on those third-party platforms, uh, you are going to maybe bring a consumer to you who's not seen you before, not used your brand before, and assuming that you execute excellently uh, is going to come back, which is great. Now, I think that means the second most important thing to do is to continue to do what's always been important in the restaurant industry, execute great food really well. And uh, driving uh, lifetime use um, people coming back using your brand over and over again is so important and it is so much um, just more profitable than acquiring a new customer every <laughs> different time and then losing them that continuing to execute really well is critical and i would suggest and we suggest in the book that um, it's important for restaurateurs to order their own food from these third-party platforms maybe order it to their house and see how it shows up. And they might find they need to tweak the menu item a little bit in order to have it carry better, or they need to change their packaging and that just taking it and putting it in the, you know, leftover to go packaging doesn't really cut it when it's going on a 15 minute car ride. And thinking through all of those things to make that guest experience as good as it can possibly be so that they want to come back and use your restaurant more and maybe eventually switch over to your first party channel, super important. Sage advice, right on target. Yeah, I know. I think we all like think, oh, digital, like everything's going to be different. But, you know, the basic things still really matter. 
Well, Chris, we've, uh, we're so excited about learning everything that Meredith knows. We really didn't ask very many questions about her and her background. And I'm <laughs> sure uh, the folks who are, uh, who are interested in her book, and I, I highly recommend it. it. It's very well written. It's a good read. Um, but Meredith, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, how you uh, came into the industry, and, uh, and maybe even you know, what motivated you to, uh, to write this book with Carl? Yeah, absolutely. So I came into the industry, I would say, by accident. Taco Bell called me and said, come interview with us. And I had a job at the time. And so I, I didn't see why I should do that. But they were very compelling. And I came down and I met Greg Creed and Melissa Laura. Um, Melissa at the time was the CFO of Taco Bell. Greg at the time was the CEO of Taco Bell, went on to become the CEO of Yum. And they were both such amazing, amazing people that I thought, oh, I need to be part of this. And I, you know, they are amazing people. I don't want to take away from that. But I think part of it turns out that restaurant people are amazing people. Um, the industry is filled with people who are caring, who are hospitable, who want the best for um, their team members and their guests. And um, that, that feeling, that passion shown through the two of them um, particularly well. And so um, I came down to Taco Bell and worked for them. And sure enough, they were absolutely amazing people to work for. I learned so much about the industry from them, but also so much about how to be a leader um, and how to just be a human in business. They're both fantastic people. And um, I became the chief development officer at Taco Bell, built about a thousand Taco Bells. And partway through that journey, realized that the omni-channel shift um, was really just starting and that it was going to affect our restaurant fleet and how and where we built restaurants. Um, one of the things that I most wished for was a commissary out of which we could just deliver tacos. Fast forward a couple of years, I met a man named Atul Sood, who is the chief business officer at Kitchen United. And he took me on a tour of their first location in Pasadena. At the time, they had a little bit of seed funding, a location they had not opened, and three employees. And I walked in and I thought, goodness, they are making the thing that I wish existed. And that's not often in your career that that happens. Uh, so I went over to Kitchen United, which is um, one of the main ghost kitchen companies here in the U.S., and help them figure out what that business model was. What exactly is it that this, this ghost kitchen is going to become um, and raise all the initial capital and figure out the business model, the operating model, the concept, et cetera. And as I went through that, I owned um, sales and also um, Carl on my team owned customer success. We talked to every major restaurant chain in the U.S. as well as many independents. And it was very clear that even those who got it about what was happening and where things were going, right? They were talking to a ghost kitchen in the year 2018. It was pretty early. Yeah. Even they had a lot of questions about how exactly does this work? And so um, one day Carl says to me, you know, someone really should write a book to help restaurants understand this. This is such a huge shift and restaurants are so important in our economy. And as it turns out with many things, when you wish someone would do something, it turns out someone is you. Um, and so he and I decided that we would write the book um, really motivated out of the desire to help restaurants, um, chains and independents alike, but really independents who might not have access to as much of this information sort through everything that's going on and get some context, um, aside from just, you know, the awesome daily articles that come out 
um, some context about why all these things are happening and how they can succeed in the change. Wow. So we've got, you know, tremendous knowledge of the industry at the highest level and then the ground floor of ghost kitchens. Tremendous combination of experience. Good for you. Yeah, it's been a fascinating journey. I have to say working at the world's largest restaurant company to working at a startup with four employees was a very big shift, but I think it was a good one for me. So what what's next? I, uh, I know what this just so new and out and, um, but what do you see as the next step, you know, for you? And, and maybe you could also kind of tell us a little bit about what you think is going to be next uh, for the independent restaurants to be on the lookout for. Yeah. So well, let's start with the latter part of that question. I think um, independent restaurants have the opportunity to enter a renaissance of food. And by that, I, I mean something like a uh, good analogy would be what has happened with the digitization of the music and film and TV industries. And I think at first when that digitization happened, uh, a lot of people were really shaken. They lost their former uh, livelihoods and their ways of making money and their ways of doing business. And you started to see some consolidation occur because only really the big guys could take advantage of these tools. And then after that, you saw an explosion. And we're now living in what they call the renaissance of the TV era. We have all these independent films. You can self-publish content. You can make a podcast if you want, right? And like almost anyone who has the desire to do it can put content out there um, in whatever way makes the most sense for them. And as a result, those of us who consume content have tons of choices of what it is that we want to listen to, to watch. Um, and that is an absolutely amazing place to be. But that transition took about 20 years, right? And when I apply that same thinking to the restaurant industry, while the last year has been a crazy transition because it happened much more quickly than I think even I ever would have thought it would, it would happen because of the pandemic. Um, and while it feels pretty crazy, like the, um, the chains have a big advantage and, and certainly it has um, turned out a digital divide has opened up in the recovery where those who have adopted digital are doing much better than those who resisted it. And in fact, most of the ones who resisted it are no longer with us. And um, that digital divide has tended to favor the large chains. And so it feels like the same thing's happening. Wow, this big digital change is really benefiting these big guys and they're going to get much more powerful. But I think what's going to happen is at the end of it, you're going to see new upcoming chefs have all of these new tools at their disposal to create lots of new ideas in a much more capital efficient way. And those of us who are consumers of restaurants are going to have so many options available to us, just like we do in TV. So there may be more Taco Bell executives leaving to uh, join startups. <laughs> We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. yeah. And the, the odds that I go to another startup that, to answer the first part of your question are, are reasonably high, right? This is such an exciting time and there's so many interesting things going on. Well, it's just wonderful to hear. And um, uh, the, you know, the amount of optimism I hadn't really thought about um, all of the opportunities for the independent in terms of, say, previous industry. Uh, renaissance, and it makes tremendous sense. Um, so I'm excited for independence. I, I, I say that um, a little bit 
feeling badly about saying it because I know this last year has been so, so difficult for so many people and I don't want to gloss over that, but I think the future is as bright as last year has been dark. Meredith, in terms of independence, to be able to operationalize all this information and and even in the introduction of the book you said hey this is a wake-up call or one of the reviewers says wake-up call this is not a how-to um of course uh, our media is very much how-to um is this an area where you're going to dive into next uh where do you think it's going to happen um because there's one thing understanding the environment there's other it's, it's completely different how to how to capitalize on it yeah, you know, I think um, step one is we all need to be friends with each other, um, particularly independent restaurants. Um, everybody is learning so quickly that they need to share what they're learning with each other. And I think podcasts like this one are a great way to do that, to talk about um, the experiences we've had, what worked, what hasn't worked, and what we would recommend to others to be doing. Um, so absolutely there. Um, there. I think the Restaurant Association has a big role to play in helping that um, knowledge transfer flow. And then um, what we personally are doing is putting together learn.delivery, which is a platform that number one has all, all of our content on it, including content from interviews that we were not able to include in the book, or it would have been a thousand pages long. Um, but then over time, we'll have a little bit more specific how-to on it as well. Awesome. Very good. Good to hear. You know, Barry, we don't normally get uh, the opportunity as we've had here in these past few moments of being able to gather so much um, well-researched um, information to benefit um, the, the independence as we have today. Um, Meredith, this is just tremendous information um, at, 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 at a wonderful time when um, independents are thirsty now in their recovery to try to put a plan of action together that starts with 2022 and moves on. So this is perfect timing for any independent out there. Uh, it is a wake up call. It's get off your duff and uh, jump into the uh, to managing and mastering the, the digital revolution that's before us. Um, it's just so nice to hear that there are steps to follow. They can do it and they will win. Um, so we can't delay. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's been really fun talking with you about these things. Well, thank you. And I uh, hope everybody will pick up the book. Um, it, it's a great book and uh, uh, purchased on Amazon. And um, I think uh, it's not only inf informative, but it was energizing. And that's always a nice combination. That's right. Um, and we also have a first party channel for those of you who uh, think Amazon is much like the third party platforms. You can order the book at deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com. Good. There you go. Good point. Everyone make note of that. The book is Delivering the Digital Restaurant. We've been blessed to have one of the authors, Meredith Sandlin, with us. Meredith, again, thank you so much. Everyone, please tune in again, and hopefully we'll see you soon on another episode of Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.